Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Sean Wilentz about his book, Bob Dylan in America, published in 2010 on Doubleday. As we might expect from the historian, Wilentz organizes the book chronologically, starting by setting the stage for Dylan's rise by discussing New York's popular front and the music of Aaron Copeland, and then the rise of the Beat Generation and Allen Ginsberg, with whom Dylan had a lasting friendship. He then, in part two, writes about two uniquely important episodes in Dylan's early career, a Halloween night concert in 1964 at New York City's Philharmonic Hall and the making of 1966 Blonde on Blonde. Part three, entitled Later, jumps to a discussion of Dylan in the 70s and 80s, highlighting his ability to shapeshift, to move from one character to another, now a traveling minstrel, now a born-again Christian, now a teacher of the blues. A description of his mid-70s Rolling Thunder review paints Dylan as the master of ceremony of a carnivalesque cross-country concert tour, and a discussion of the song Blind Willie McTell shows Dylan as a conjurer of blues men past. A discussion of Dylan in the 90s shows Dylan as an historian, a preserver of America's past. The chapters here focus on Dylan's reconceptualization of songs and stories of the past by focusing on two songs from 1993's World Gone Wrong, Delia and The Lone Pilgrim. Finally, Willens presents the 21st century Dylan as a grand elder statesman of American art. The focus of these final chapters is not simply on Dylan as musician, but also of Dylan as author, painter, filmmaker, and radio host. In Bob Dylan in America, Willens presents an artist immersed in all things Americana. Consequently, Willens writes a book that is about more than Bob Dylan. In detailing the lives and stories of others such as Aaron Copeland, Blind Willie McTell, and the Reverend Gary Davis, Willentz serves up a solidly detailed history of American popular culture. Sean Willentz is Sidney and Ruth Lapidus Professor in the American Revolutionary Era at Princeton University. He has authored critically acclaimed books on Ronald Reagan and the rise of American democracy. He is also the historian-in-residence at BobDylan.com. Professor Willentz lives in Princeton, New Jersey, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Sean, and welcome to New Books in Popular Music. Hi, Matt. How are you? Great to be here. I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, why don't we start, please, by you telling us uh, a little bit about yourself, your biography, and especially I think there's an interesting part of your biography that actually relates to your Bob Dylan story, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm, a, I'm currently a historian, teach at Princeton University, taught here for more than 30 years, but I grew up in New York. In, actually in Brooklyn Heights, but my dad and his brother owned a bookshop in Grange Village, and um, which was uh, sort of a well-known place at the time. It was uh, called the 8th Street Bookshop on the corner of 8th Street and McDougal, um, and then moved across the street after after 1965. <clears throat> but it was sort of a, a you know a literary hub, and uh, it was just up the street or down the street, depending on how you looked at it, um, from all of the folk music centers of clubs and the folklore center, places like that. So I grew up amidst that ferment of, of culture in and around the bookshop and in and around you know, the village. 
And so some of these characters in your book would uh, stop by the bookshop, correct? Yeah, basically, yeah. It was it was <clears throat> it wasn't just these characters, as it were, but many, many you know, it was it was a place where um, New York intellectuals and writers and artists of various kinds would um, congregate or just come and buy their books, um, just because it just got the reputation of being a place for to go if you wanted to look for an intelligent a selection of intelligent books and uh, things that you wouldn't get at ordinary bookshops. So, and, you know, and he catered to a pretty um, impressive crowd. Um, so, so, but, but, but very much in there in that mix were people like, you know, Allen Ginsberg and, uh, you know, the Beats and um, uh, in particular, that was a, they had a, quite a close association with the Beats because they carried their work and uh, were willing to, 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 to put it out you know, into the public. Um, and but you know and, and, and so and so um, by the late 50s early 60s understand I'm still a little kid by then I'm only you know 10 years old in 1961 um, but I was growing up around all of that so I had a sense of, of something extraordinary happening. Right. So so you are by training an historian yeah. and um, you have a number of other books uh, on Reagan on Jacksonian democracy etc. It would seem at first glance that a, a book on a you know a pop music figure, a rock music figure, Bob Dylan, is is a bit of an anomaly. Uh, is it? Well, it is, I suppose, for most you know academic historians. But I've always been on the kind of edge of all of that. I've always you know reached out for a larger audience. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you see Bob Dylan as something um, beyond a, 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 an entertainer, I mean, he is an entertainer, and that's essentially what he is. Um, but by the same token, he's something larger. He meant more to the culture than most rock or pop musicians. Um, and he's meant more to the culture uh, above and beyond his music. Um, although, again, I, I always insist that the music is central. Um, but, you know, he, he has affected a lot of people's lives with his words and with his um, lyric and, lyrics. And, um, you know, to that extent, he's, he's, a, he's an extraordinary character. Um, uh, and, 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 and to me, well worth studying, um, A, because so many people are interested in his work, and B, because I just think that the work is going to last for a very long time. So we're not talking about your run-of-the-mill rock musician or even your run-of-the-mill rock star. So then, uh, generically, is art an important piece of a culture, a society's history? Well, of course, of course. I mean, even in my... You know, my um, straight political history books, um, <clears throat> I try to bring to bear, you know, a wider cultural, artistic, um, a wider cultural and artistic dimension, um, writing about novels, writing about poetry, uh, not so much the visual arts in the 19th century, because it's not as strong, um, but song, to be sure, there's, there's, you know, minstrelsy shows up in my big fat book about uh, the rise of American democracy. So, so absolutely. I mean, um, just as politics enters into an understanding of music, so music enters into an understanding of politics. Mm-hmm. So, so more specifically, then uh, you you suggest early on in the in the intro to your book mm-hmm. that Dylan is a combination of tradition and defiance. What do you mean yeah. by that? Well, I mean Dylan has described himself himself as a traditionalist. I mean he draws on very old modes of. <clears throat> both music and uh, popular music, sometimes not even popular music, but popular music in particular, um, and literature. I mean, he's very steeped in classical literature and great, great world literature, let alone American literature. And he draws upon them, and I think he sees himself as part of 
you know, as grow as emanating from that tradition. Um, by the same token, he's quite, you know, a defiant character. I mean, insisting on his own individuality, insisting on his own artistic integrity, um, in, in, in insisting that, uh, you know, that, that no one's really going to tell him what to do <laughs> and uh, as an artist or anything else. Um, and that sensibility shows through in the music as well. So it's drawing upon tradition in many ways to express, uh, express defiance. Which moves us in uh, uh, to chapter one and a, a, a focus on um, uh, Aaron Copeland, especially. Yeah. Um, what is the connection between uh, yeah. Copeland and Bob Dylan, please? The Copeland, the Copeland chapter, I must say, confused a lot of people um, because uh, maybe I just didn't explain it well enough. I think I tried to. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, we're back to um, the first part of the book, which is trying to explain certain influences on Dylan's work. And um, the two that I wanted most to talk about were um, the, the popular front folk revival of the 1930s and 1940s, which of which Woody Guthrie was a particularly important member, um, Pete Seeger too, as well. Um, that world that came out of the 30s, but especially it was especially important in the 40s, which obviously influenced Dylan and the whole folk revival of the 1960s. And then I also wanted to talk about the beat poets. Um, and it, with the beats, it was fairly easy. Maybe we'll get to them a little bit later on. But for, for the first chapter on, the, on the, the popular front folk music, the earlier folk revival, if you will, the first folk revival, um, I just didn't want to tell the same old stories about Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan. I mean, they've been told many, many times by biographers, by many others. Um, Dylan's talked about it himself. Um, <clears throat> I, I wanted to try and get at that connection in a different way. And, um, you know, I didn't want to do Pete Seeger either. I mean, I just didn't want to do one of the, you know, the, the things that have been talked to death, as important as they are. I don't, I don't mean to, to, to minimize their importance, but I wanted to see if I could uh, look at the story a different way. And one of the ways to do it was to look at the, that whole world of the 1930s, um, of sort of New York downtown, left wing, indeed Communist Party um, affiliated um, musical ferment uh, that was occurring around 1933, 34, 35, and um, out of which certainly came, um, um, you know, the many much of the folk revival. People like um, Charles Seeger and Pete Seeger and uh, all of them kind of kind of came out of that earlier world. Um, well, as it happened, I was studying about that, rummaging around and all of that, and I did find a, a review of a, of a Copeland concert at one of the Communist Party's um, sort of affiliated music venues downtown on 18th Street in New York, and it was written up in the Daily Worker, the party's newspaper, uh, by one Carl Sands as an expert, um, or rather as an excellent um, um, demonstration of revolutionary music as a uh, as Sands put it. Well, it turns out that, that, that Carl Sands was the pseudonym for, for Charles Seeger, who was Pete Seeger's dad. <clears throat> and when I saw that, I began to think, well, here are some connections that have to be drawn out. Um, and of course, Copeland, who, who was very much aligned with the left, um, went in a very, very different direction from the, 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 the folkies, but not that different direction. I mean, in many ways, it was similar in that they were incorporating popular American music, folk music, that, 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 that Copeland listened to very, very closely and, and, and raising it to, to another level. In the case of Seeger and Guthrie, it was more to politicize, to, um, 
to um, you know shake people up to uh, play in union halls and so forth. In Copeland's case, it was a matter of, of reaching a public that hadn't uh, that was eager to hear music, but that was p- perhaps put off by the classics. Um, a, a new audience that you know, now owned uh, phonographs and you know records and could, could listen to music without having to pay money to go to a concert hall. Um, he wanted to appeal to them and to appeal to them with the same kind of um, um, popular music raised to another level that um, the likes of Seeger and Guthrie were singing. Um, so in a, and, and, at the same, and, and, and to kind of proclaim a kind of, uh, what, an Americanness to the common man uh, or, or to celebrate the common man. Indeed, he writes fanfare for the common man, Copeland does. There's a sensibility, uh, a political sensibility, that um, um, crosses over into the music and in some ways actually makes the music comparable, even though in, you, know, you, you wouldn't uh, think of, of Aaron Copeland and Woody Guthrie as necessarily uh, you know, in, the same, uh, in the same category, but there are links there. And I was interested in finding some of these links, um, trying to find some of these cultural circuits, as I call them, which connect things that seem to be disconnected or unconnected, but in fact are, and help explain, I think, illuminate aspects of Dylan's work, which um, the more familiar uh, connections to, to, to the likes of Guthrie um, you know, just can't. Uh, it seems that you bring out, uh, at least you show that there's, there are some uh, parallels between the careers of Dylan and Copeland. For instance, you suggest, you know, people, uh, Copeland becomes, you know, more mainstream. He writes some commercial music. He, you know, he gets quotes about the, his music being kitsch. Um, right. Dylan has some of these accusations uh, hurled at him as well, doesn't he? Well, yeah, I, there is a parallel in that, I suppose. They're both accused of selling out, right? I mean, right. When Copeland moves from writing very difficult music in the 30s to, in the mid-30s to writing more um, popular music, he's accused of having sold out. Funnily enough, Dylan moves from writing more, uh, you know, from singing rather, you know, seemingly simple folk songs other than ever simple, you know, seemingly simple folk style and getting more um, um, complicated <laughs> with more instruments and the band and so forth. And then he's accused of selling out. Um, but they both have to face that. They both have to follow their own muse, and they do so. Um, um, in, in, in Copeland's case, actually, it was drawing him closer to the left politically or, or sustaining his connection to the left before he makes a big break in the early 50s. Um, in Dylan's case, it was actually moving away from um, the, uh, the, the New York world of politicized folk songs. So, you know, in some ways, you know, there are divergences or they're doing things in, in, for different reasons in different ways, but some of the same patterns are there, some of the same you know, impulses, some of the same imperatives, some of the same constraints are there in both of them. Indeed, uh, Dylan s- spends quite a bit of time, effort, it seems, distance, as you just said, distancing himself from, from the politics of the 60s. Right. I mean, he writes some very obviously political songs in 1962 and into 1963. I think, though, that he does have a what? Um, he's in flux by the end of 1963, and the Kennedy assassination, I think, actually affected him quite deeply, although he said that it didn't really, but I, 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 I think that it did. Um, it affected everybody, but I think it affected him deeply. And it was happening at a time, you know, when he was moving, you know, moving back from or away from um, the very, very tight world of New York folk singing, not every, you know, not every folk singer was a left winger, but those politics kind of pervaded the world um, of, 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 of folk singing and folk singing song recording and so forth. Um, you know, Dylan, and Dylan was part of that, and Dylan was writing songs like, you know, Masters of War and 
<clears throat> excuse me, and with God on our side. And, you know, these were, um, um, you know, fairly predictable um, um, left-wing folk songs. He was also writing more complicated, I must say, political folk songs, even before he made his, you know, started distancing himself. I mean, Dylan's a very shrewd and intelligent and poetic man, and he was reaching out in, um, um, in ways that the more predictable folkies didn't. So that in songs like, you know, Only a Pawn in Their Game, in particular, is one I think of, that, um, you know, didn't, you know, it made a kind of familiar left-wing argument, but played against the dramaturgy of the civil rights movement in that he was giving a somewhat sympathetic view of the man who had killed this great civil rights hero, Medgar Evers. It wasn't saying that he, what he did was right. He wasn't saying he had supported him. He was trying to understand him. And, you know, it showed that Dylan's empathy, or, uh, by, by which I mean his ability to try and understand other people, understand their plight, understand why they might do things, um, you know, crisscrossed in unusual ways. So even before he made his, um, um, you know, he made his division, or he made his dis- sort of his distancing, he was already, you know, um, moving in some interesting and somewhat unpredictable ways. Um, um, and, and, and another song, another example of that is Hard, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, which many people took to be a kind of uh, uh, a parable or a metaphor for nuclear fallout. You know, back in the in 19, early 1960s, um, you know, the, the ban the bomb and the dangers of, of nuclear warfare were very much on people's minds. And the left actually organized um, somewhat about, uh, about all of that. And indeed, um, Dylan writes a song, Let Me Die in My Footsteps, which is about uh, resisting the urge to uh, go get, you know, build bomb shelters as a way to protect yourself against the, the Soviet menace. Um, and, and, to, and to, at the same time, accept the reality of nuclear warfare. Um, um, but Hard Rain's Gonna Fall was not that. I mean, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, even though it talks about, you know, the pellets of poison, pellets of poison will uh, ruin their waters or something like that. Um, um, it's not about that. It's about a different. It's a, it's a larger apocalyptic vision which transcends politics, and um, you know, and Dylan was writing that, you know, as, as early as September 1963. So he's already on the move by the end of that year. So how about then? Uh, uh, generally, the influence of the Beats on Dylan, and I suppose more specifically. Dylan's relationship with Allen Ginsberg. Yeah, well, it's it's that's just at this point, Matt, when when you know I think the Beats um, begin to be have you know an influence. Now, Dylan had read beat poetry when he was still a student in uh, Minneapolis. Um, he moved out from Minneapolis from Hibbing to Minneapolis to, for a sort of failed first year as a, <laughs> as a college student. Um, but he was reading. You know, he was part of the Bohemian crowd in Minneapolis, and they were he was reading. Jack Kerouac and, uh, you know, Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti and all those guys. And, but, you know, but then he got involved in folk music and he kind of left all of that. And he, and he responded to a different kind of poetry, the poetry of Anglo-American balladry. Um, but I think when he's finding the politics of the, um, um, the, the New York left-wing folk circles to be constraining. I think he also found the language constraining. I mean, you know, you can't write a song like um, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall and not be extraordinarily ambitious in your useful language, right? Um, um, and he was reaching uh, for lyrical levels that um, just weren't there in even the most um, poignant of folk songs. 
um, even those complex of folk songs, as complex as they are. But he was interested in a different kind of language, a language of modern poetry that was different. Um, and it happens that he, he, he hooks up with, with Ginsburg for the first time late in December 1963. And by the time you get to the, 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 the album that he, that he records that following spring-summer, Another Side of Bob Dylan, um, every, a lot has changed. Not everything. Not, everything never quite changes in Dylan's work, but a lot has changed. Um, the, the, the songs are more introspective. Um, they're reflecting, you can see it as beat prosody. It's also um, the, the, the poetry that the beats, that the beats had drawn on themselves, uh, particularly um, Arthur Rambeau. Um, Rambeau's poetry meant a lot to Dylan and meant a lot to Alan Ginsberg. And there was a, um, a, uh, a, just a poetic sensibility, um, let alone um, a poetic language. Which was complete, you know, which is on a, on a wholly different level than his earlier uh, folk efforts, um, and I think by 1964 he's moved into that, as well as into a more introspective, um, you know, songwriting. I mean, it had, he'd always written love songs, he'd always written songs about pain and difficulty, but now he's doing so in a much more insistent way, and um, um, and in a much more complicated way, much more poetic way. Um, so you end up with. Um, um, you know, it, just a different body of work is starting to emerge. And this is what you mean uh, about his the inwardness of Dylan's song that changes, right? Sure. I mean, you know, listen to a, you know, a song like you know, To Ramona, um, which where he's addressing a girlfriend and just trying to tell her, you know, not to listen to her friends. Her friends are screwing her up. She should just live for herself. Um, um, you know, these are the kinds of things that didn't come that they do come across actually in, in, in traditional balladry, but wasn't part of the folk music. He was writing about that um, in, in, a, in a fresh and different way. Um, or a song like Chimes of Freedom, um, also on another side of Bob Dylan, where the title might sound as if it's, you know, it's a, a pay into the civil rights movement and so forth. Um, it's a much more complicated song lyrically in describing a, uh, describing really a thunderstorm on a, hot summer's night in the city um, and ducking inside a doorway with a friend or a couple of friends, it's a little unclear. And, but suddenly the, the, the peeling of church bells and the, the, the peeling of the thunder merge and you have a very, very powerful um, set of images that end up becoming an appeal not just to the, the downtrodden of, of you know, the, the, the oppressed in, 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 in sort of normal um, sociological terms, but reaching out, as he puts it, you know, to every hung-up person in the whole wide universe. He, you know, he talks about the rebel and the rake. Um, he, he's looking to outsiders. He's looking to outlaws, even. Um, but 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 he's he. It's a much broader sensibility that he had brought to bear on his in his earlier work. And how did the folk establishment react to this inwardness of his music? Well, I mean, the folk establishment, the the. The, the 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 sort of commissars of the of the folk world, uh, the people who were on the hard left, um, saw it all as a sellout, and many of the younger people did too. Um, they, they, they look, Bob Dylan had come along, and they thought of him as their new Woody Guthrie, right? They thought of he would he that he would serve a function in their lives and in their movement, um, which was you know to rouse the proletariat to great political um, achievements. Um, they saw Dylan as the troubadour of all that, the troubadour of the revolution, um, the troubadour of civil rights, to be sure, but of something even larger than that. And um, 
when he moved away from that, they thought of it as a betrayal. You know? And they thought of it as a betrayal in part because they'd invested so much in him psychologically, um, um, you know, in every possible way. Um, you know, Dylan was their darling. Um, so, for example, in 1964, well before he, uh, he goes electric at Newport, um, or famously goes electric, he's actually been recording electric for months before that, but um, well before, even before the electric move, as it were, um, he's already being berated by Erwin Silber, who's the uh, editor of Sing Out magazine, which was kind of, uh, well, along with Broadside magazine, were kind of the... Uh, where it was at in terms of um, reading mag- in terms of magazines about the folk world, um, he, he writes a, an open letter to Bob Dylan, where, she, where he berates him for having, huh. um, you know, made this uh, the, this change. That he, he berates him for the way he was acting at the Newport Folk Festival. That he seemed to be much more inward. That his songs were um, um, self-obsessed. Um, he didn't like it. He didn't like this new Bob Dylan, and he said, it, and, we had, and it had a vaguely menacing quality to it. Um, both he was both uh, sad, but he was also angry. Um, and uh, you know, it, it couldn't have pleased Bob. You know, Bob is a 23-year-old artist trying to trying to you know follow his muse, and he's getting you know he, he's being declared politically incorrect in in, in a sense um, because he wasn't uh, following the the what what people thought of as what folk music was supposed to be about, which was you know the the voice of the people simple, non-commercial, anti-commercial even. Dylan's move to rock and roll seemed to be a betrayal of all of that, of, of a sensibility, but more than a sensibility, of a way of life, um, of a commitment that was very deep in, 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 their, in their souls, and uh, which Dylan had basically, uh, you know, it, it seemed to them that, that Dylan was, you know, um, um, just telling them all to take a, take a hike. Uh, and, and not just telling them to take a hike, but to tell, take, tell, say that this whole world was um, phony and and and, uh, and and not worth the commitment they were they were giving it. So you know this came as a shock, a deep shock. A shock to Dylan? No, 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 a shock to them. Okay. Um, I mean, the response I think surprised Dylan um, somewhat. I mean, I think it was. I think his feelings were hurt by it. I mean, who 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 wouldn't be? Um, and you know, when when later he continues down this road and in, in, in following his own. Um, you know his own aesthetics, um, and and does start recording with um, electric uh, an electric band, um, and you know records like a Rolling Stone, and then appears at the Newport Folk Festival of all places, um, where this uh, old guard was very much in command, um, and plays electric with members of the Bloomfield Mike uh, the Butterfield sorry with Mike Bloomfield of the, of the um, Butterfield Blues Band, um, you know I, the booing that occurred. Um, I think um, it can only have hurt his feelings. Um, I don't know if he was shocked, but you know he, he knew he was doing something, something daring, something crazy. Um, but uh, you know, people really did get angry, and I think that he uh, he was he you no know, he couldn't have been too happy about it. But he must have enjoyed it a little bit as well, I mean, because he keeps doing it. You see, in the in the he does it, but you know, he, I don't know how much he enjoys it. I think he's just defiant. I think he thinks, you know, we're going to, this is, this is where, this is, this is my future, you know, and, and, and this goes back to defiance and, and tradition. Um, um, I don't think he liked the fact that people were upset. I, I don't read it that way. Um, I, I don't think that he, um, um, but I don't think he was going to get, um, uh, I don't think he's going to cower on that account. 
I don't think he was going to apologize on that account because he was just doing what he did. He was um, following his own muse. That's what he does. That's what an artist does. Um, now, I mean, if you see um, um, the, the footage from 1966 from the tour of Great Britain, um, there are two things about all that that are important. First of all, first of all, he wasn't booed everywhere. Um, there's this kind of myth uh, that's grown up that once Dylan gets booed at Newport, everywhere he goes, he gets booed. Um, well, that's not true. Um, he, he did a concert at the Hollywood Bowl in September um, where people liked it fine. Um, they loved it. They cheered it. Um, I just, um, there was, you know, it, he does Berkeley in 1965. He plays Berkeley. The people loved it. You know, the last, you can hear people just at the end of the, the electric set just saying, beautiful, this is beautiful. Um, I just listened to an old, sort of crude, but an old tape um, from Hartford, Connecticut in October of 1965, after, after Newport. And you have a couple of voices saying, you know, people saying, you know, play folk music, play folk music. But most of these songs, including things that weren't particularly familiar, were getting a very, very loud and warm response or a reception. So, so he wasn't just getting booed. It was, there was a division going on, and he was getting a certain amount of support. Now, that's, the, that's point number one, that he knew that um, there were people out there listening, and if he didn't, uh, wasn't going to gauge it by um, the audience response, he could just look at the pop charts where, like a Rolling Stone, zoomed up to number two. So, you know, <laughs> people were, he, he had a new audience, and he knew that he was getting support. Um, number two is when you see the footage of the 66 tour, uh, the world tour, particularly in Britain. In Britain, there was organized um, um, booing going on, um, really organized by folk music clubs, which were very often attached to the Communist Party of Great Britain. Uh, people would go to the, to the um, 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 shows just to boo. Now, in some of the footage, you can see that that upsets Dylan, too. Um, um, but he's surrounded by friends there who know better, and he's surrounded by his fellow musicians like you know, like the, the, the members of the band and even Mickey Vork, who was substituting for LeVon Helm. Um, um, you know, he, he, he's just going to go ahead and do it. And in the climactic scene, the famous uh, scene at Manchester, the Manchester uh, uh, Free Trade Hall, um, where someone from the audience towards the end of the concert shouts out, Judas! You know, very, very loud, you know, the betrayer. Um, the look on his face, you can see it in the film. I'd never seen the film, seen this until I saw the film itself, of just, you know, gleeful, um, <laughs> through you. You know, he was happy to say, um, sorry, and then he says, play blank and loud. I don't know if I can, can I, can I, can I use four-letter words on this thing? <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'll, I'll, everybody knows what that line is about. So, um um, you know, he's just, you know, he's, he's angry, but he's, he's an anger that knows that he is heading in a new direction and that he is, there are people who like it. There are people who get it. There are people who are on his wavelength and, uh, you know, the rest of the world can really just take a hike. Um, now, you know, there's, I guess, I suppose a third element to all of this too, though, is that he himself was coming, kind of coming to the end of the rope at that point end of his rope at that point, fueled by, you know, whatever combination of, um, um, you know, caffeine, um, uh, illicit drugs, and 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 adrenaline, um, and creativity. Um, he was pretty much at the end of his rope. He had recorded Blonde on Blonde in New York and in Nashville, um, um, but he was really pretty um, 
but I, I, I don't know a good word for it. It's not wasted exactly, because he's still he's still doing an, an extraordinary amount. But he was he was at the end of his rope, put it that way. And um, you know that's when he had the, the motorcycle crash, and that's when he does move away, and a uh, whole phase in his career ends. Before we get to Blonde on Blonde, um, at what point in his career, or has he? Do you think Dylan becomes comfortable with his fame? Becomes comfortable with his fame. His fame, yes. I mean, some people seem to, you know, crave being in the spotlight. And he's always seemed like that. He, he seems like he enjoys it. Well, well look, he, you know, look, he, he wanted, he grew up wanting to be a rock and roll star, right? Right. You know, he wanted to be bigger than Elvis. He wanted to be, you know, Little Richard. He was always, you know, he was, you know, talking, you know, boasting about how he was, he had played with Bobby V up in, you know, Fargo, right. where he was playing. You know, so he wanted, you know, he wanted to be a rock and roll star. Um, now he, and he made it. Um, he didn't make it like Elvis made it, um, in the sense that, you know, he wasn't that kind of rock and roll star. Um, and, you know, in the, in the precincts of the, um, um, the village of the folk music world, you know, I mean, Pete Seeger was about as big a star as you were going to get, um, or maybe the Clancy brothers and, and Tommy Makem who had a Columbia Records contract and were playing Philharmonic Hall. That was about as big as you were going to get. Um, well, he got lashed onto Columbia early. And then he made it really big. Um, and I think, you know, who could not um, um, enjoy that? That's what he set out to do, um, not just to be ambitious artistically, but to be ambitious commercially, to, to have an audience, to, uh, to be popular. Um, but then it got way out of hand, and it became a menace. I mean, it was not just that he was being stopped by autograph hounds or what have you. People had, again, invested a new audience, uh, invested its hopes, its desires, its... Um, what its it, its deepest yearnings into this guy? I mean, he became a, an icon, um, and I don't think anybody wants to be that. It's one thing to be famous; it's another thing to be called the voice of your generation, and uh, have have to live up to that. He didn't want to live up to that, and he didn't. I think it's in, in his uh, in his his biography. He's, when he moves up to Woodstock and he comes home, there's like people sitting in his living room. Well, I, you know, I was up around Woodstock then. It was true. I mean, people, you know, there were kids <laughs> showed up. You know, the word got out that Dylan was up in Woodstock. And everybody knew that his his manager was also Woodstock. Albert Grossman had a house up there in Bearsville, not, not too far away. And, you know, and there were people just hanging out in town just trying to catch a glimpse of Bob Dylan. And according <laughs> to the to Chronicles, there are actually people who found out where he lived in Birdsville and, uh, were climbing on the roof and stuff, and you know, trying to, you know, I don't know what they were trying to do. They were trying to get a, a, a some sort of glimpse or touch of right. of magic. I mean, it was as if he had, uh, you know, supernatural powers. Um, you know, it's crazy. You know, here right. he is, and he and he had recovered from whatever happened in, in 1966. He he'd got he had already been married since the late 60s. He had, you know they were having he was raising a family. He was actually trying to be fairly conventional and just, you know, having a nice new family. You know, he was a young husband with a family. And, you know, in come these people who want him to, you know, tell them, advise them about everything from um, the philosophy of life to how to, you know, how to grow uh, marijuana. And, um, I mean, he can talk about the first, but I'm not going that he's much of an expert on the second. And really, who cares? You know, leave the guy alone. And, you know, and there are all little kids there and stuff. I mean, who, who wants that? So he had to leave Woodstock and then, you know, began a pilgrimage, um, you know, physical pilgrimage, which he took finally out to California. But, um, um, yeah, I mean, that's not fame. That's, that's um, a, a curse. 
Um, um, it's beyond fame. It's, it's, and I don't think anybody quite had it the way that Dylan did because as much as people loved um, Elvis Presley um, and invested a great deal in him and, and, you know, to the point of impersonating him, right? Um, to, to, as much as they adored the Beatles or adored the Rolling Stones, um, you're not going to go to, um, you might go to John Lennon. He might be the one exception. But even he, um, you're not going to go to these people for, um, for deep philosophical um, um, insight. Um, but people went to Bob Dylan for that. I mean, people went to Bob Dylan thinking that he was a messiah in some ways. And um, it, was, it was crazy. It was also dangerous um, for all the reasons that, you know, look what happened to, 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 to Lennon. Um, you know, you never know who's out there. And he was flipping a lot of people's wigs, as someone put it in an interview once. So, you know, it was kind of scary. The late 60s had a very scary quality to it. Um, 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 and then there's the whole self-destructive aspect of it, which, you know, he pulled back from that abyss. Um, but, you know, all the things that happened to you, you, you name all the famous rock stars. Um, you know, there are temptations and there are dangers. And, uh, you know, Dylan wanted to have nothing to do with that. So let's get back to, to to your story specifically. What role does uh, Blonde on Blonde have in your story of Dylan's career? In my story? Well, I mean, I just think it's the best album he cut, certainly in that period. Um, it was the most um, ambitious um, um, lyrically. Um, it was the most ambitious in some ways musically. Um, but it shows him pulling together you know, many, many, many different strands of American music and um, American poetry, American literature, not just American, too. I mean, British as well, um, and, and French to a certain extent. But it's all being pulled together, and I think that's where he finally brings it all back home, as it were, um, even though that's a title to a different album. Um, musically, I mean, I think the music actually has been somewhat um, underrated because of the power of the words. I mean, there are musical performances on that album that are just extraordinary. Um, um, some of the best that he's ever put on record. Um, um, One of Us Must Know Sooner or Later, which was actually recorded in New York, not in Nashville, um, is, you know, um, an extraordinary performance. I, I, I hope people will go back and listen to it again, um, particularly a man named Paul Griffin on the piano. Um, it's just amazing. Um, or on, um, you know, not necessarily the most famous songs, um, um, absolutely sweet Marie, um, the, 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 the duet that he picks up, you know, it's like, it's a band, but he locks into a, into a back and forth with the drummer, Kenny Buttry. And, um, at one point there's a long, there's an extended harmonica break, which is one of the two great harmonica breaks, I think, in Dylan's, well, three great harmonica breaks in Dylan's, um, career, the others being on, um, Desolation Row and on, um, Every Grain of Sand much later. Um, but but this one is one that's a it's a kind of duet. It's a back and forth between him and Buttery, just amazing. Um, and then there's then then there are more famous songs like um, Visions of Johanna, um, said on Lady of the Lowlands. Um, these are songs where he captures, I think, what uh, what um, Al Cooper, who was his organ player and somewhat you know, his musical leader, if you will, um, of 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 the so sessions. Uh, one of the two musical leaders. Um, he called it the sound of 3 a.m., and I think he does get that. Um, he captures a kind of twilight time, not twilight time, but but pre-dawn time, the wee small hours of the morning, uh, as uh, 
Sinatra would have put it, um, what that song would have put it. Um, he captures that extremely, extremely well. And it's a sound. You know, it's not, it's not in the words, it's not even in the notes, it's in the sound. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think for all of those reasons, you know, Blonde on Blonde is, a, is an amazing achievement. Um, there's also a lot of myth about the making of it um, that I wanted to clear away. I mean, he does leave New York. He starts to record the album with the, um, what had been his touring band, the Hawks, um, but later became the band. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't work out in the studio. It just didn't work out. So uh, but with the exception of uh, one cut in New York, but it wasn't with the band. It was with a couple of members of the band, as, as I found out, but uh, with other, other, other um, performers as well. Um, and that's, you know, uh, one of us was no. But then he goes down to Nashville. And so the myth there is that these, you know, New York hipsters led by the, you know, the ultimately hip, um, you know, the terminally hip Bob Dylan, you know, run into a bunch of good old boys. And, um, you know, what happens is something that's strange and weird, but they somehow pull off this album. But in fact, um, the, 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 the mix worked very well. Um, and, and in detailing, finding out more about the history went on down there. And these were younger musicians. Um, they were very, very hip to what Dylan was, was trying to do. And they, and they, you know, uh, fell into it pretty quickly. It was Dylan who was a difficult one, actually. He would keep people waiting while he was revising his songs and his lyrics, and he'd keep people you know, waiting and waiting and waiting. They're all getting paid you know, anyway, so they're more than happy to hang around and play ping pong and drink Coca-Cola. But um, you know, he would just keep them waiting. But once Dylan was done and once everything happened, it's extraordinary how quickly those songs got recorded you know, in, in, in two takes in some cases. I mean, it all, it all happened very fast. Because the musicians were adept, because they were able to merge with um, Dylan and with Al Cooper and Robbie Robertson, who were Dylan's musicians there, um, and just to create something that is just magical. So that's part of the story too. Mm-hmm. Um, you you call Dylan's years after '67 his fallow years. Um, did I did I call him that? Uh, maybe I have it in quotes. It could be me, but. Um, <laughs> From about 67 to 74, um, yeah. and how Blood on the Tracks represents well, him coming... By lots of people, this is a great comeback, right? Right. Um, um, I don't know, Dylan did a lot of stuff. I mean, Dylan goes into seclusion, but, you know, he's never quite as secluded as all that. He, he, he withdraws to Woodstock, but he, you know, he and his buddies, you know, do, uh, let's say the band, um, they do do these tapes down in, uh, at, at where the band was living, and in his own house in Berkeley, um, you know, that are later releases the basement tapes. And they're, you know, a rollicking uh, kind of tour through American music of various kinds, about which Real Marcus has written a you know, wonderful book called Invisible Republic. That's all post, you know, that's all in these, if that's, if that's part of the fallow years, then uh, maybe they weren't so fallow. Um, but they were years of his retrenchment. I would, I would say that. They were years of retrenchment. Um, and he's trying out different kinds of things, um, but he but he produces a lot of you know interesting great music. I mean, there are those who think that Nashville Skyline, which but when Nashville Skyline came out, 1969, 1970, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, John Wesley Harding before that, which comes out at the end of 1968, um, is you know songs like All Along the Watchtower. Uh, um, that's an amazing song. Um, so. 
you know, I think his real, his real difficult period, struggle period, actually comes later in the 1980s. Um, but, you know, there's, there is this period, I, I, I would agree, Matt, there's a period where he's, he's moving in many different directions and he's trying to find his new path. And he's going down some and then he's swerving very quickly to others. Um, he does Self-Portrait, which is an album which many people don't like at all, but um, I think has a couple of redeeming songs on it anyway. Uh, it's a nice painting on the cover. Um, um, a self-portrait, actually. Um, but, you know, but he's trying to there, um, you know, play standards and older music and, you know, trying to recapture something and try out new things in the studio. Um, it doesn't, doesn't really work terribly well, in my view, but, you know, he, it's part of this experimenting that he's doing. He also is uh, dabbling in painting. He, he, he attends classes, advanced classes, with a, an artist an artist-slash-philosopher named Norman Rabin in the city. Um, you know, he's trying out a lot of different things. Um, and then, you know, his personal life is starting to get into turmoil, too. So there's a lot going on in this fallow period. It's not so fallow. And this is the period of the Rolling Thunder Review, isn't it? Well, this come, that comes later. Um, okay. And I think that there is this, you know, there's this burst then. I mean, he, he records um, 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 Blood on the Tracks, which is a you know, a, a painful album in many ways, but a, but, a, but an extraordinary one, uh, which has a lot to do with, you know, it's concerned very much with um, loss and pain and broken relationships and um, um, and, and how to deal with them. Um, it's as well as a sort of rollicking, weird <laughs> ballad um, called, you know, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. Um, but, um, but but that really shows him he, he has found a new voice. Um, I don't mean a physical voice, although that's sort of true too, but he, he, he's putting it all back together again. But then he moves in, an, in another direction, but it's, it's, it's a little, of a piece with, with Blood on the Tracks, but he, he does the Rolling Thunder Review in 1975 and then right. repeat it in 1976, and, and out of which comes the album Desire. Um, and that's a whole other experience about which I write it at some length in the book. How about uh, how about his Christian phase? Uh, is this foreshadowed in his earlier career, and does it continue on past the seventies? Well, sure. I mean, to the, to the extent that you know, I mean, um, you know, Dylan once was asked by um, I think the Times Literary Supplement in London to to state to, to just uh, a bunch of authors were asked um, to list uh, what they think is the most underrated book in the world and the most overrated book in the world. So they asked Dylan, and he says, the most overrated book in the world is the Bible. And they asked him, and he says, what the, what's the most underrated book in the world? He says, the Bible. The point being that there is, you know, for some people, um, you know, the Bible and its, um, not only its, its language, but its message of redemption, um, and, of, and of, well, it's beyond redemption, that's the New Testament, um, of suffering as well, um, um, People dismiss it, and without having having read it, um, it is underrated. But it's also overrated as well because people take it um, either so literally or take it um, with, without really thinking about it very hard. Um, they vaunt it as a great um, as the book without really understanding it. Um, that it's overrated too. And so, but Dylan had been preoccupied with you know biblical themes long, long before he enters his long before he has his own conversion experience and. At the end of the 1970s, um, you know, I mean, um, in, you know, Heart Rain's Gonna Fall, in, um, you know, much of John Wesley Harding, in um, going all the way back to When the Ship Comes In, a song um, from the earlier 60s, um, 
you know, ideas, the uh, biblical language of um, um, apocalypse and redemption are there in his writings very, very early. Um, you know, he, he, whether he's picking up in the Bible, whether he's picking up from the folk uh, tradition, which includes a lot of that language as well, um, it's there early on. What's different is that he really becomes, I mean, he really does have this conversion experience. And um, so he mounts a different kind of show and writes a different kind of music over three albums, which are you know, explicitly, the first one in particular, saved. Um, I mean, he's writing gospel music. He's writing, you know, he's writing religious music. It's sacred music. It's not secular music. Although, like the best Southern gospel, um, you know, he's drawing on all kinds of secular um well, themes to an extent, but you know the musical styles as well. Um, that that crisscross, that mishmash, that becomes um, um, you know American gospel. Um, you know he's drawing on that too. Um, he writes some great gospel songs, and you know that and that stretches out over three albums: um, 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 Slow Train Coming, Saved, and then uh, Shot of Love, right through into the early '80s. And this uh, this carries over into his, his live performances too, right? Well, he does an extraordinary sh- series of shows um, in 1979 to 1980. Um, you know, the so-called gospel tour, where he's you know, where he's showing up with his backup singers, um, all of whom are black gospel singers of great with great talents, um, and um, and he starts preaching actually in some of them. I mean, he's preaching hellfire sermons, basically telling his audience. You're all going to hell. Um, you should listen to me. Jesus is the way. Um, I, and listen to me. I told you, you know, I said the times were, they were changing and they were. You know, I told you that the, the answer was blowing in the wind and it was. Well, now I'm telling you Jesus is the way. And you're all going to go to hell unless you, uh, you know, get hip to Jesus. Um, now, at one level, that's, you know, I, 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 you know, it's perfectly sincere. You know, he believed all that. But another level, this is enough perfectly American grain of performance. Um, the show with, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of Southern Tent Revival show in some ways with him as a Hellfire Damnation um, preacher, um, but also with music as part of it. Um, music that often can, uh, you know, if you have the late night show afterwards, it can be quite secular indeed. Um, um, but but Dylan's, Dylan's once again reinventing older American art forms in his own idiom. So what what goes on with Dylan in the '80s and the '90s? You, you seem to say, you know, he, it's a mishmash kind of, and, and he gets back on track in the '90s. Exactly. I mean, he, I think after he, he records Infidels in 1983, I think that he runs out of steam. Um, now he's a, he's a real professional and he's a trooper and he stays on tour, um, and he continues to record albums. Um, and he records some interesting songs. There's, there's hardly any, any Dylan album, which is not at least one interesting song to my ears. Um, but, you know, but it's just not what it had been. And there's some pretty bad clinkers in there, like uh, Down the Groove, which is mostly interesting cover songs, which is, you know, predating something that's going to be much more interesting later on. But, you know, not much in terms of, 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 of songwriting. Um, and the performances were often very lackluster in this period. I mean, he would go on stage, and he himself said this, um, you know, and he just wouldn't be performing to the top of his ability, and he felt like he was at the bottom of a well, and the, he felt like a, you know, like a burned-out rock star, right? Um, and, and frankly, he was playing like a burned-out rock star a lot of the time, and he was recording like a burned-out rock star a lot of the time. 
And um, I remember hearing him. Um, you know, he gave some good shows. I remember hearing him here in Princeton. I don't write about this in the book. Um, in 1990, um, when he was going around with G.E. Smith, um, who was then the guitarist on Saturday Night Live, and he was part of Dylan's band. And actually, it was a, it was a good show. I, I liked it. So it wasn't uniformly terrible by any means. Um, but he had lost touch, I think, with the animating force that um, was part of, had always been part of all of his music. And interestingly enough, he finds it in the early 90s by going back to basics. Um, and when, and when we talked earlier, Matt, about, you know, how he's a defiant traditionalist, um, you know, I think he has to come back in, to, in touch, get, get back in touch with his traditional roots, um, his roots in folk music and in the blues. And after he had recorded some of this, some music along those lines with his friend David Bromberg, um, they just thought about, I think some thought about doing an album together. Um, they, that all gets shelved for some reason. I, I kind of wish that Dylan's people would bring the, that stuff out. It's pretty, it sounds, I've heard it. It sounds pretty good. Um, but anyway, he goes back to his um, garage in Malibu and um, you know, just starts recording um, with his guitar and his harmonicas. Um, just starts recording very, very old um, Anglo-American ballads and some of the first blues songs ever written, Stack of Lee, Delia, things like that and records two albums um, of acoustic folk and blues. Um, and I think by the time he finishes the second of those albums, World Gone Wrong, he really has gotten back in touch with um, his, 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 his art. Um, his, 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 you know, he, he, his art takes many forms, but he's got back, back in touch with his, um, the spirit um, that had led him into the great work of the early mid-60s. Um, and, you know, because what he does is he doesn't just cover these songs, he reinvents them. You know, he inhabits them in his own way. Um, and, you know, it's hard for me to describe that. I try to do that in the book of how, of how he does this. But he takes some very, very old songs like Delia or Staggerly or, I don't know, or Lone Pilgrim is the one that I write about at some length, the one of the two that I write about at some length. Um, and, and he and, and he reimagines them. He, they, they sound unlike any other recording of them ever done. They are the same songs by all means, but they are done very very differently, and they're very um, um, very powerful on that account. And I think that what that what that's required of Dylan, it's forced Dylan to um, you know once again enter into the spirit of tradition, but to um, put it on his own terms, to rethink them, to reimagine them to reclaim them um, for himself and for his listeners. And he does that in each of these songs, and I think that's what gets him back on track and prepares him to be able to write the songs that go into Time Out of Mind, which comes out five years later in 1997. All of this leads to, you have a discussion in Chapter 9, um, the idea of Dylan as a, a musical and cultural thief. Right. Right. Ooh, uh, what does that mean? Plagiarist. Well, you yeah. know, lately um, um, he, he well he did an album actually. He does he does Time Out of Mind? Then he does an album called Love and Theft, um, and with an exclamation point, in ex, in, in, sorry, in quotation marks, um, because he's actually citing the, the the title of a book which is all about black minstrelsy in um, early nineteenth century America. Um, you know, much of art is about theft. And it's about love. You love something, you steal it. 
then you make of it something new because you love it. And out of that comes art. Um, and, you know, theft can take place in many different ways, in many different forms. People are always dealing from one another in art. This is something that English majors and English teachers don't understand when they accuse them of plagiarism because, yes, if you're writing a term paper and you, you cop somebody's lines, you're plagiarizing. But in art, it works differently. Um, artists are always taken from each other, and particularly musical artists. Um, and Dylan has been doing this all his life. Um, look, I mean, the man's name is not Bob Dylan, right? <laughs> and he seems to stole his last name. Um, um, you know, and that's a you know show business tradition, right? You know, um, um, you know, Lord knows, I can't go into all the names that have been right. changed in in show business. Um, so. You know, there's nothing inauthentic about that. That is what entertainment is in part about, but it's also what high art is about. And, you know, T.S. Eliot is swiping from people all the time. Um, um, It's something that's intrinsic to what he's doing, but I think he starts doing it in in, in new and interesting ways at the end of the 90s. I mean, it's much more ambitious, um, much more um, um, conscious or self-conscious. Um, and much more compacted. I mean, on, on, on Love and Theft, you get everything from Charlie Patton to, uh, you know, to Donizetti, um, you know, the, the, the early 19th century Italian opera composer. Um, I mean, you get, you know, all sorts of worlds within worlds, even within a single song there. So I think that that, that, that kind of appropriation, reappropriation, and remaking um, of stuff. Um, um, he's an alchemist, is the way I put it, I think. I mean, he takes stuff that might be ordinary, um, some of it extraordinary, but he brings it all together and makes something new. Um, and, and, and more often than not, it is indeed gold. Um, it's, it's more often than not, it's, 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 it's well worth listening to. Um, so I think he starts doing that, and, but I think that all comes out of you know what happened in the early '90s when he when he was going back and, in effect, doing that with the songs, uh, the old blues and folk songs, um, taking them and 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 re-inhabiting them. And then he they, he kind of moved out of that into a um, less of a, it's even less imitative and more um, creative than it had been before. Mm-hmm. Finally, uh, Sean, uh, how serious is Dylan as a filmmaker artist? Uh, painter. I mean, is it, is it like Michael Jordan going to play baseball? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question, Matt. I mean, you know, he's wanted to do so many different things. Sometimes he succeeds and sometimes he fails. Um, you know, I mean, he's made what well, he's appeared in a number of films. He's made, uh, well, he basically made Eat the Document, which was the film of the 66 tour. He made Ronaldo and Clara, which is, I think, a mess. Um, interminable, um, with some interesting footage in it, especially the concert footage, which is great. Um, um, and then he made Mastin Anonymous, which the, the critics all panned, which I think is actually an interesting movie. Um, so he's had uneven success. Um, you know, the, the paintings, you know, they're back in the news again because he's been using, again, he's been using photographs and using those as the basis for writing, for painting some of his paintings. I think he's gotten much better at it, actually. I, I went up to the Gagosian galleries and saw this, this the Asia series. Um, you know, I was prepared. When I go around and talk about Bob Dylan, people, I knew people were going to be asking me about this. And my stock answer had always been that I'm, you know, about as interested in Bob Dylan's paintings as I am in, you know, Herman Melville's sculpture, <laughs> you know, or, or, or Anton Chekhov's, you know, um, um, photographs. Um, 
but in fact, I, I, I think it's, I think these are pretty good. I mean, they're they're, they're very good. In fact, um, they show a real eye. They they show an eye for detail. They show his talents as a songwriter kind of coming out on the canvas as as, as, as never before. Um, they're not just vignettes. They're they show an attention to situations, to detail, um, to to human subtleties. Um, some of which he might find in photographs and then you know reproduce on his own. Some of which he's he's drawing from life. Um, but but I think those skills are 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 there too. They're just frozen, um, or they seem to be frozen in in, in in the paintings. So you know I don't I, look uh, like like I say I don't call it Bob Dylan still primarily for his um, painting, or primarily for his um, um, his his filmmaking abilities. Um, I don't think he's going to be remembered for all of those. But he is a multi-talented artist and. I think that there are certain things that he can only express in those, you know, modes. So he expresses them, and you know, um, uh, more power to him. Well, thanks, Sean. I appreciate it. Um, what are you up to recently? I think you, you have a, a fairly recent book on. You're back to, to more political national figures with Ulysses Grant. Anything else going well, on? I was going to do a U.S. Grant book, but you know, I ended oh. up writing. There's a book that's going to be coming out in April, which I hope um, all, all of you out there will be uh, attentive to. <laughs> Um, it's a history of Columbia Records, so I'm still. Oh, really? It's still in the music vein, yeah. Uh, 2012 marks the 125th anniversary of the founding of the firm that became Columbia Records, which is the oldest um, recording label um, in the world, um, and has a you know a storied history, which includes, of course, Bob Dylan, but but many many others, um, you know, going back to John Philip Sousa. And Al Jolson, you know, up to I don't know Adele, I guess um, these days. So it's a storied history. Uh, it's a complicated history. It's a story of science because they did a lot of technological innovation. They invented the long playing record, for example, that was all done by Columbia Records. It's a fascinating story about marketing and about business and about science and technology, but and about commerce and business, um, but mostly about art and you know some of the most extraordinary. Performers and um, 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 and performers um, have appeared on Columbia Records over over the, over the decades, and uh, I got a chance to write about that. So, so look for that sometime. I believe it'll be coming out in April or May. So I was suckered by Wikipedia on the Ulysses S. Grant book. <laughs> well, it was, never believe Wikipedia about <laughs> certainly about me. Uh, there's a lot in there that uh, is uh, um, 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 incorrect. Um, but, you know, Wikipedia is good for, for, for some things, but uh, don't rely on them more. <laughs> don't follow leaders and watch your parking meters. <laughs> well, thank you, Sean. I appreciate you for being on the show, and uh, good luck with your future books. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a delight to be here. You've been listening to an interview with Sean Lentz about his book, Bob Dylan in America, published by Doubleday in 2010. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thank you for listening.